0: Welcome to Bizzina Perspectives, our podcast series at Bizzina Investment Management. I'm Valerie Arnold, co-head of North American Distribution. At Bizzina, we are a global value manager known for our commitment and dedication to disciplined value investing throughout an investment cycle. Today, we are here to discuss ESG and how it impacts our energy investments. This podcast goes along with a thought piece, Energy Investments in a Zero Carbon World, that you can find on our website, pazina.com. Now, let me introduce you to our guest today. I'm here with our co-CIO, John Getz. John has been at Pazina since the founding of our firm 25 years ago, and he is a portfolio manager on our global, international, European, Japan, and emerging market strategies. Welcome, John. Thank you. I'm also here with our energy analyst, TBR Murthy, He has been at Pazina Investment Management for 15 years. Welcome, TBR.
1: Hello, Valerie. Good to be here.
0: Thanks, TBR. Lastly, we are joined with our ESG analyst, Rachel Siegel. She joined us two years ago. Um, And welcome, Rachel. It's great to see you. Hi, Valerie. Great to be here. Thanks, Rachel. So I thought we would start off with John um, and maybe John, you can take us through a little bit of our history and evolution of how we think about ESG at Pizina.
2: Yeah, thanks, Valerie. Uh, as you mentioned, we've been doing this for 25 years here, uh, and, and I would say as long-term investors, uh, these longer-term forces, ES and G, uh, have been important to us. I, I like to remind the investing uh, folks out there that As long-term people, we will own some of these businesses and we do have to understand uh, long-term transitions. If you were a millisecond trader, uh, I don't think these issues have to jump out quite as much, but we must understand changes, the changes going on for the businesses that we invest in. When one thinks about ESG, it is really about the forces that impact the longer-term health and the transition that these companies are going through. Uh, Remember in, in deep value, there's always an issue otherwise the company wouldn't be inexpensive, uh, but our job is to understand the longer-term impact of these issues. In that sense, you have always been concerned about ESG, but we've certainly become more focused and disciplined about it. That has required adding some resources to identify the issues, drive the integration, and interact with the companies. To that end, Rachel Siegel has joined our team, and I'd actually like to ask her to see how she thinks about the evolution of ESG uh, more recently. Rachel, let's talk about your role and in the integration of ESG from your perspective.
3: Great, thanks John, happy to. And, and maybe I'll, I'll just start by stating the, the obvious, which is really that all of our strategies at Pazina are considered to be ESG integrated. And, and that really means that we are taking into consideration material ESG risks and opportunities as a fundamental part of that research process. You know, As John was alluding to, you know, this is something that we think is critical uh, to determining the impact that these issues may have on, on long-term earnings potential. And so we, we acknowledge that ESG issues can be a source of risk, but also opportunity. And it's our job to determine our view of the future of that company and whether we believe in the recovery of that over time. So I joined Pazina in 2019, partly because I recognized the existing commitment the firm had to ESG integration including the fact that the firm had already signed the PRI or Principles for Responsible Investment back in 2018. Um, so where I fit into all of this, you know, I think my role, I would really describe it as an internal consultant to the investment team in two primary ways. Uh, the first being to bring perhaps a little bit more of a thematic cross-industry view of ESG issues and, versus the investment analysts that are going to know more than I ever could possibly about an individual company under that coverage. And then secondly, to make sure that we really have eyes on the breadth as well as the depth of ESG issues that may be facing a company or an industry. The way that I sort of see analysts as trained is going very deep on call it the one to five issues why that stock is cheap. And oftentimes ESG may make that shortlist. But sometimes there may be an ESG issue that falls outside the top five reasons why the stock is cheap that I might think warrant some follow-up and potentially company engagement. At that point, I bring these issues to the attention of the analyst, and together we discuss to determine if there's any further work to do there. Um, But we're obviously here today to discuss the energy industry and there's there's really probably no better example of where ESG is front and center to the investment thesis for any stock. And while there are plenty of company-specific ESG issues in the energy industry, from a thematic perspective, the, the key issue really is the transition to a net zero world and the implications that this societal imperative may have for an industry that's historically relied on the demand for fossil fuels. So I know that's what we're going to get into now and, and it'd be great um, to hear more from TBR and John on that.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks Rachel. Uh, the key, key words that Rachel's emphasizing here is you know, bringing perspective uh, on these evolving issues. And certainly energy has is loaded with some serious controversy. Uh, we're gonna try to give you a little bit of a flavor of our view and analysis uh, in this area today. Uh, One one thing I would like to point out is when big changes hit, like the zero carbon world, particularly in Europe, where where that regulation is ahead of some of the other parts of the world, certainly it's ahead of where we are here in the U.S., we can't uh, be Pollyannish about that future and how different, actually, that future is going to be than the past uh, in the energy issue. Uh, That brings up a couple of big questions that we've been wrestling with and analyzing. Uh, TVR is here today because he's done most of that work uh, for us at the Xena. But, but one of the things we need to understand is, is there a risk that some of these oil and gas companies that may appear to be cheap, really have a future that's very dark and gloomy compared to the history in the business that revolves around, is there a risk of stranded assets? You know, How much time do they have to get to the zero carbon world? And what are the tools they have to get there? But last but not least, and, and, and certainly you have to understand we build these portfolios all around the world, one company at a time. Uh, so at the company specific level, that as Rachel was saying, we raise a thematic issue, zero carbon world, we have to know how that translates down to the company level and what their transition plan looks like and actually financialize it. So let's start Let's start at the broad and we'll move to the narrow TBR. Let's start at, you know, what is the risk that uh, 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 an oil or gas asset is going to disappear or dematerialize in terms of its value, given the evolving supply and demand dynamic. Clearly the demand we know probably is worse than it would have been if you had looked at it 20 years ago, but why don't you walk us through how you framed the supply demand scenario here that we need to consider uh, in this outlook.
1: Yes, John, thanks, um, happy to. Um, so let's start with the demand scenario. I mean, so to set the context, in 2019, the demand for oil and gas products was roughly about 160 million barrels per day. And so obviously in 2020 and 2021, the demand has been materially lower than that, uh, given what has been happening in the economy. But this is a cyclical issue. This is a shorter term cyclical issue. And we expect that the demand will recover as the economy recovers in the short term. But as you alluded to, the concern is more around the long-term demand for oil and gas in a decarbonizing world. The expectation is that the energy system needs to be decarbonized materially if we are to keep the temperature rise to below two degrees centigrade by 2040 or 2050. And so the concern is when uh, when that happens, um, that the demand for oil and gas could be materially lower than the 160 odd million barrels um, that we saw in 2019, and so when that happens, um, then the one of the big overhangs on the oil and gas stocks is that the reserves that they have, in terms of the reserves of oil and gas that they have, could be left in the ground and stranded. So that is a material issue, and in terms of understanding that, right? Um, so. We've looked at a couple of uh, organizations that have taken a fairly deep dive um, into the issues there, and have tried to come up with plausible scenarios of how we get to that um, relatively low carbon world. And so we've looked at uh, studies from the International Energy Agency, IEA, and from British Petroleum, which is a a British um, oil and gas major. And again, when we are looking at something that happens over the next two or three decades, I mean, clearly there is a lot of uncertainty in terms of the path to getting there. Um, and there is a lot of technological and policy uncertainties that need to be resolved over the next few decades, really, to get there. And so when we talk about the scenarios of oil and gas demand in 2040 or 2050, these are really the best the best guess scenarios um, that these organizations are coming up with, given their technological know-how. So from both IEA and BP, so they come up with estimates of oil and gas demand in the 130 to 140 million barrels of oil equivalent per day in 2040. That is compared to the 160 million barrels of demand that we had in 2019. So that number, is about that e- that is roughly equivalent to about one to two percent annualized decline from here to 2040. So the takeaway I have is even in a scenario where the world actually does hold the temperature rise to below two degrees centigrade in 2040, there is still a substantial demand for oil and gas products to roughly uh, to uh, the equivalent of. About 130 to 140 million barrels of oil and gas equivalent per day.
2: Yeah, TVR, just jumping in there. Uh, clearly, that demand that's that slow double di- that slow single-digit decline. Low single. Very lot by region. You know, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, certainly places like Europe are going to have a faster rate of decline than in yeah. pla- places like China. Certainly, which will probably have increasing demand. You know, for the next couple decades. So. Uh, there is a variety across the region, but I, I think the reason you're mentioning the, the combination of all that is really it's the global demand and supply that really matters to oil prices and the fortunes of these companies that are competing on a global basis. Uh, but let's let's switch now uh, to the supply side because clearly we all accept that demand in 15 years is going to be lower than today. So how the heck are these companies going to survive in, in a declining demand scenario?
1: Yep. Um, so the interesting part about the oil and gas industry is that the oil and gas production naturally declines at around 5 to 8% per year, right? And so that is purely from the geophysics and the, just the physics of, you know, reservoir depletion. So what that essentially means, you know, if an oil and gas company does nothing from one year to the next, it's production would actually be lower but about, by about 5 to 8%. And as i mentioned a little while earlier, right i mean it, the best guess scenario as we can see it today right is calling for something like a, a low single digit decline per annum right some something like 1 to 2% decline per annum in terms of demand. And so what the 5 to 8% natural decline rate implies is that if we do nothing right i mean if we do not invest um, in bringing on new supply, then the supply in 2040 is going to be materially lower than the 130 to 140 million barrels per day that of demand that would exist at that particular point in time. And so roughly, I mean, the oil and gas industry in a typical year is investing somewhere between 500 to 700 billion dollars and in some cases, in some years, it's been materially above that in keeping the production flat to slightly up from year to year, right? I mean, so over the last few years, I mean, so the production growth has only been about one to 2% a year.
2: So TBR, when we know certain companies like BP actually have announced they are going to liquidate reserves and not invest for production growth, you know, if you think about that environment uh, where some companies are already bailing out of, of attempting to keep up uh, with demand, uh, what does that mean for oil prices from, from your perspective?
1: Right. Yeah, as I said, right, I mean, so there is still a substantial amount of investment needed to meet the, even the lower demand that we expect in 2040, from where we are today, right? And it's uh, interesting that you mentioned BP because BP has estimated that the oil and gas industry would need to invest about 9 to 20 trillion dollars to meet the expected demand in 2040 so what that means is that the oil and gas industry would need to be able to generate enough cash flow to be able to invest that amount and then the oil price needs to be high enough to be able to generate an adequate return on that investment and we estimate that the required oil price is somewhere between 50 to 70 dollars. And interestingly, the long term oil price has roughly been, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about constant dollars, has roughly been oscillating around 60. And interestingly enough, right now we are getting back to that level. So the Brent is roughly around 60 dollars per barrel at this point.
2: Okay, so, so TBR, you know, just let's put a point on it. If we need that kind of multi-trillion dollar investment just to keep up with the declining demand, you know, in, in the world. Um, you know, we're we're facing a wide range of outcomes for companies because they may choose different strategies uh, in this environment. But, but why don't you tell us then what that implies from a stranded asset point of view from your perspective?
1: Right. So the public oil and gas companies have something called developed reserves on their balance sheets. So what developed reserves are, are the reserves of oil and gas that they have that they can potentially produce without a huge amount of incremental investment. And so the public oil and gas companies typically have about 10 to 12 years of reserves on their balance sheet. What that means is at the current rate of production, they will run out of reserves in about 10 to 12 years if they do not make any substantial incremental investments. And some public oil and gas companies actually have materially lower reserves than that. For example, Royal Dutch Shell now has only about seven to eight years of reserves on its balance sheet. And as we talked about earlier, right? and we are expecting fairly material demand even in 2040, even though it might be lower than what it was in 2019, it's still a substantial amount. And so in that context, given that the public oil and gas companies typically have only about 10 to 12 years of reserves, the risk of stranded assets in terms of the reserves that they have on their balance sheet not being produced is fairly low under any reasonable demand scenario.
2: Right, so, so basically uh, the, the, the reality of them converting assets into cash flow, you'd have to give that a high likelihood now it also, what you said earlier, also implies that there's trillions of dollars of cash flow coming out of the oil and gas industry, you know, over the next ten or twenty years. Uh, so I guess you know it really behooves us to move on to how does the transition work, and is there hope that you can get a decent return, you know, when they utilize this cash flow? Uh, that brings us pretty much, you know, to the transition from fossil fuels uh, to other businesses within these companies. I think. That's the really tricky part for us, right? Because we're not just talking about the fact that the oil price might be $60 or 40 or 80, it's what do these companies do with the cash and, and, and what can we expect? And that's where the word transition takes up all our time. And this is just connecting the dots here. That's what Rachel's talking about when she says, you know, what, are the, what is the environment going to give us uh, and what are the opportunities uh, for these different companies? Um, so, so given that that transition has already started TVR, maybe just touch on a few high points of, of maybe what has surprised even you, right? In, in terms of how, how aggressively these companies are pursuing transition.
1: So till now, I think we've essentially talked about the energy transition as a potential downside for the oil and gas industry. But there is a flip side to it, right? I mean, so in any transition, there are also potential opportunities that the oil and gas industry can potentially take advantage of. And when we think of the oil and gas industries, there are really three subgroups within that. The upstream, there is the downstream, and then there is oil services. And each of these subgroups potentially has good opportunities that it can take advantage of in the energy transition. For example, if you think about the upstream segment, so there is opportunities in, uh, in natural gas, um, which is considered a transition fuel uh, to a lower carbon future. Then there are opportunities in carbon capture that they can uh, potentially play in. Again, if you think about downstream, there are opportunities in sustainable chemistry. There are opportunities in biofuels. And again, if you think about oil services, there are opportunities in carbon capture, there are opportunities in hydrogen, There are opportunities in offshore wind that they can potentially pursue. And I think one of the, to to your point, I think one of the interesting things that has essentially come out is that it is important to remember that oil and gas extraction is a technologically intense business. So there is a, so the the incumbents um, that have been involved in the business for a long period of time have actually built up significant technological know how and technological advantages and when you talk about transition i mean the scale of investment required in the transition is also fairly material and so so what that essentially means is you do need players with the capital and the cash flow and the technical know how to play in the transition and so the current players in oil and gas actually have access to both right as you pointed out i mean so the the oil and gas business does generate trillions of dollars of cash flow, and if invested well, and if invested in areas that can provide a competitive advantage, there is no reason for the incumbents not to carve out a place for themselves and carve out good businesses in the energy transition.
2: Yeah. So, so I think I want to go through an example here in a minute, but Rachel, Before we do a specific company and and get caught up in that, why don't you walk us through from your perspective what the filter is that we should be looking at uh, when we we look at this transition from from an ESG perspective?
1: Yeah,
3: happy to. I mean, I do think that the fact that we're long-term investors really gives us an advantage in thinking about these issues. Just listening to you and TVR kind of go through the issues that this sector is facing you know, we're very comfortable and always have been very comfortable taking that long-term perspective for our investments, really, when it comes to any issue. And this is certainly a very pertinent one at the moment, but I do think it sort of plays very well with how we, we tend to think about our investments, generally speaking. And then, you know, I really think that as a long-term investor, that that means a few things for us. And one of them that I would just like to point out is the importance of developing a relationship with the management teams. And that's really what helps us evaluate some of what TBR was talking about in terms of where the opportunities are and and which companies may be best placed to take advantage of them. And it's really our job as an active manager to exert any influence that we feel may be necessary to help steer those companies towards the maximization of long-term shareholder value management teams are actually our partners in any of our investments because it is the decisions that they take that are fundamental to determining whether our investment thesis will play out over time and then i think second it's important to appreciate that esg is is a journey for every company and i don't think it's ever something that we'll be able to declare victory over the situation the world in which we live in is always evolving and these issues are therefore constantly evolving with that and so Just wanted to make the point that I think from our perspective, we're not particularly concerned if at a point in time, a company may not appear very favorable, perhaps on a scoring perspective or even just a third party evaluation, because all that really tells us is where that company has been in the past and not really much about where it's going. And I think all of what TVR was talking about is really the future oriented view that we need to take as investors to figure out where companies can play and should play. In this transition and in fact with the transition to a lower carbon economy underway starving economically critical businesses of capital because they are more carbon intensive will only make the monumental task of the transition that much harder and then i think also just important to note maybe finally that for any issue particularly climate transition risk in the case of energy that's not going to play out the same way for each company even over a long time horizon and so I think that perhaps leads us into the next discussion about some company examples, but did just want to make the point that not all transition plans are created equal. And that is why the bottoms up company specific lens through which we look at these issues is really critical to evaluating things.
2: Yeah, Rachel, I I liked the way you put that. And and I think one of the things is from from just an older investor that being myself uh, perspective, it's just interesting. I don't think the current ESG scores are any more efficacious than a current PE is to
1: the
3: (laughs)
2: the future of a company. So that's the problem. These simplistic factors or or metrics can be be really deceptive in terms of looking out uh, to the future. So I'm glad you brought that up. Speaking of the future TDR, the, the Royal Dutch future we think might be quite a bit different than the past. So Why don't you uh, just share some of your thoughts on on Royal Dutch?
1: Yeah, um, so Royal Dutch um, happens to be, you know, one of the oil majors that we actually think has a thoughtful strategy for the energy transition, right? Um, And so so the part that uh, maybe I will highlight is their uh, integrated gas business, right? And I think we touched upon natural gas as potentially being a transition fuel um, in the energy transition. And what I mean by that is that in the developing world um, a significant portion of the electricity generation is really from coal, which is the dirtiest fuel among all the fossil fuels. And so to the extent that you can transition electricity generation from coal to gas, there is a substantial benefit from just uh, lower carbon intensity. And so that is part of the uh, path to getting to a lower carbon future, Uh, particularly in the developing world. You know, there is a fairly big opportunity in moving their electricity generation. And again, in the developing world, actually the overall electricity generation capacity is also growing at a fairly decent clip. And so if you can move that electricity generation over to a, a, a less carbon intense uh, uh, fuel, which is gas, that is a fairly material savings. So Royal Dutch Shell has actually built a fantastic business, a global business in, uh, in uh, natural gas that they call integrated gas, where they essentially produce gas from their global assets, And then they supply natural gas um, in the form of LNG to uh, their global customers through their marketing and their global trading uh, mechanism. And so this particular business, I mean, they are the biggest in the world and they have built, uh, they generate a significant amount of competitive advantages through scale, through customer access and through their uh, trading organization that they have, because. And the the trading organization depends on the flow and the connections that they've built up all around the value chain. And so this happens to be a business where um, uh, Shell actually generates among the highest rates of return on their capital. Um, And I think it's it's a great example of how an incumbent can build a great business in the energy transition.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, that even just in the past uh, difficulties of electricity supply uh, in various parts of the world, we've, we've also begun to figure out that maybe that combined cycle gas turbine using LNG or, or natural gas uh, can actually be used to generate hydrogen on location with those utilities, right? And that's one of the benefits of working cross industry uh, in terms of our research, because we know the utilities uh, are considering this as a long-term option, even beyond natural gas as a fuel, but into hydrogen as a fuel. Uh, So that obviously we've had a positive uh, reflection on, on Royal Dutch and the interaction with the company, I would say has been positive because they're revealing plans that we would endorse as shareholders uh, dealing with long-term transition. We should probably go to the flip side, Rachel, and you mentioned you know, the ability to interact and, and talk to management teams. Maybe we should share an example where that interaction didn't work out quite as swimmingly as it, as it did for World Dutch.
3: Sure, yeah, I think a, a name that comes to mind there would be EniOs, the Japanese oil and glass conglomerate. and. This is a name that really on paper is making the quote unquote right moves in terms of planning for a net zero future. However, I think our view here is that just because net zero is an important societal imperative it does not mean that every company is best placed to deliver on a specific set of ambitions. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's really our job as an investor to help evaluate that And our our main contention with the NEOS transition plan was really twofold. Uh, The first issue was the magnitude of spending that they were proposing to make on environmental related matters for which they really had no proven prior track record. And then the second was, was sort of linked to that, but really the fact that there were prior examples in the history of this company of management making investments in projects that generated weak returns on investment and the reason for that was primarily their lack of expertise in, in these projects before entering into them. And so in the case of Enios, it really appeared as though the company was trying to reinvent themselves overnight rather than going through a sort of thoughtful exercise to determine the areas of competitive strength for the business, as we saw in the example with, with Royal Dutch Shell, where they did a good job at doing that. And so that's not to say at all that we're opposed to energy names preparing for the transition. I think this discussion has made it clear that we are very in favor of that. But really what we are opposed to is a divide developing between the business and the ESG strategy. We really want to see those fundamentally linked. And for a company to be successful in its net zero ambitions, it really has to maintain franchise value over time. And when it came to EniOS, I think we felt we had more questions than answers there. And we have expressed these concerns to management. We've maintained an ongoing dialogue with them on this issue, and I, I think we hope to continue that, you know, as long as we remain shareholders.
2: Yeah, I think that's that pulls it together well, Rachel, because we are in the long term interested in the zero uh, carbon world, uh, and and at the same time, we have fiduciary responsibility as stewards of capital to make sure that the plan makes sense. Uh, just you know, reminding everyone that that Royal Dutch integrated uh gas strategy didn't start yesterday uh this is you know uh, longer than a decade major push by royal dutch to become a leader uh and have a competitively advantaged situation uh, in integrated gas so uh i think that that pretty much uh gives two clear examples of a transition that's well thought out we can expect uh an above-cost capital return versus one where we just don't know meaning you're just heading heading into Uh, the fog, I like to say, uh, in in the transition. So I think that that brings it together pretty well.
0: John, um, thank you for those comments. I think I really am impressed with the amount of research we've done on the transition um, in the energy world. I just wanted to ask one last question before we go. Um, How do you see ESG influencing our research efforts and portfolio construction in the coming years?
2: Well, I, I think Valerie, we, we've hinted at it, but, but certainly it's more and more an issue in, in everything we look at. It's one of the biggest factors of change uh, going on around us along with technology. Uh, so I would say technology and the ESG forces are things where you definitely have to be looking forward and, and doing your homework uh, on investing. I think, I think the peril, the, I, I would just say this, I think the peril of investing on simplistic value factors is actually going up uh, with time because of these forces of change. Uh, I'm so glad Rachel uh, has joined our team and and we've just added another uh, person to the team focusing specifically on these ESG issues. I see it as something that will sweep the world. I alluded to it starting in Europe. Fortunately, we manage a lot of money in in a European strategy. So we're we're there and all our investments are ready. But longer term, it comes to the United States, certainly with a Biden, transition, it's going to sweep through. And then I would say the rest of the world is kind of forced to, to play catch up whether they they like it or not. Uh, certainly, China's already on it. Uh, and then it's going to sweep through, it'll eventually, you know, sweep through India uh, as well. So I think it's something that we need to uh, pay attention to and make sure we're, we're not flat footed on this one.
0: Thank you, John, TBR and Rachel for joining me today. I hope everyone enjoyed this very in-depth discussion on our research in energy and how we integrate ESG. Um, To find more information on Pazina and on our thoughts on energy and ESG, you can visit our website um, where we have a thought piece. Um, It's www.pazina.com.